Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Jane Rawson. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with the First Nations. Jane Rawson is the author of the novels From the Wreck and A Wrong Turn at the Office of Unmade Lists, a novella, Formaldehyde, and the non-fiction book, The Handbook, Surviving and Living with Climate Change. Jane is joining me today with her latest novel. It's called A History of Dreams. In Adelaide in the 1930s, Margaret, Esther, and Phyllis are studying to be witches under the guidance of their friend Audrey. The friends have founded the Semaphore Supper Club with the dream of changing people's minds and helping men and women dream of a more equal world. As the group finish school and enter the so-called real world, they find that society doesn't want female adventurers and university graduates. It would rather see women at home, married and pregnant. The friends believe they can change their corner of the world, but they are not the only force that wants to manipulate the country's dreams. As a conservative force rises across Australia, the people in power turn their attention to women's place in the world, and these men have very dark dreams indeed about where women fit in. Join me as we discover Jane Rawson's A History of Dreams. And look, just just a note, stick around to the end. There is a fabulous conversation about how cats sometimes introduce or interrupt podcasts, and Jane and I... Well, we start to fancast a history of dreams. Hello, Jane. How are you? Got it. You got, got it. it. Got it. Amazing. <laughs> I was trying to do a microphone that I don't have. Ah, uh, yes. I have encountered that problem when you when yeah. you're trying to plug in multiple things. Yes. Thank you for joining me to chat a history of dreams. I'm really excited. This is such a fun, like thought provoking book. I'm glad you liked it. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna drop in that one of the questions that I'm gonna establish with, I did a bit of my research and while I haven't read the entirety, I did have a dip into we were going to be different and I yeah. a little oh, bit cool. of that history. So should we just should we just jump in and see how we go? Let's do it. My name is Andrew Popel, and it is my pleasure to be welcoming Jane Rawson to the show. Jane is the author of the novels From the Wreck and A Wrong Turn at the Office of Unmade Lists. She's also the author of a non-fiction book, The Handbook, Surviving and Living with Climate Change. Her new novel, A History of Dreams, is out now. It's amazing. I'm so excited to talk about it and welcome Jane. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I, I want to establish uh, a history of dreams a little bit. We're taking ourselves back. It's Adelaide in the 1930s. Margaret, Esther and Phyllis are studying to be witches under the guidance of their friend Audrey. They dream of using their magic, which is a power over dreams, to subtly influence the society that wants to keep women in the home married and pregnant. And the friends believe in their small corner in the world but. It's not until a conservative force begins to rise in Australia that they appreciate others want to manipulate the country's dreams. And these men have a very dark dream about women's place in the world. I mean, the setup alone is amazing and I, I want to get to the story. But to start with, 
My research has told me, I'm, we're going to go back in time, and my research has told me that A History of Dreams is in part inspired by a book called We Were Going to Be Different. It was compiled by your mother and relating the stories of your grandmother and her friends. I've had a little bit of a dip in. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about your grandmother. Tell me about the Cosmopolitan Club and how it helped inspire A History of Dreams. Sure. I'm so excited that you had a look at We Were Going to Be Different, my mum's book. It's such a cool book. Um, it's, so it's based on interviews that she did with uh, her aunt and um, her mum's friends. Her mum was dead by the time that she did most of the interviews. Uh so, yeah, it was essentially a history of their friendship group, the Cosmopolitan Club, which was later known as the girls when they got more adult and serious. So the Cosmopolitan Club started in high school in the beachside suburbs of Adelaide. And one of the things that the club did was to all adopt aristocratic names and to take on the personalities of these exotic cosmopolitan women um, who are quite unlike their sort of small suburban lives in Adelaide in the early, in the 20s and the 30s. Um, and the other thing they did was all promise that none of them would ever get married, which they didn't do. Many of them did get married, but they did leave it a little later than some of the other girls around them. And they vowed that they would always stick together and be friends, which they did. They they gathered regularly throughout their entire lives up until their deaths, most of them. So they were a very close group of girls and then women um, who had wild imaginations and had a lot of fun together. There's, there's actually so much. I could do a whole interview with you about this book. because what You should interview my mum. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's this. This sounds like a nice addendum to our conversation. I mean, the one thing that's one thing that struck me. I just want to note, like the book is done with almost an academic rigor. Um, like there were pre-interviews and the main conversations and follow-up. I, I really loved that. But I was hoping maybe you can also put in context how this friendship, the endurance of this friendship, and and even the idea that they they made this pledge that they wouldn't marry. Um, how that sort of fit in the world that they lived in at that point in Australia? I, I think that the girls who stayed in that club were quite strange um, compared to the women around them. My, my grandma and my auntie were academically uh, very talented. They did really, really well at school um, and they – had nowhere to take that, to, to take their intellects. When they finished school, um, they were sort of shunted into fairly menial jobs. They both married, they had kids and, you know, they were great mums and grandmas and aunties and homemakers, but they never got a chance to do anything with their gigantic brains that they had. Um, so I think a lot of that was channeled into, into these adventurous ideas, into imaginative ideas, into putting on plays and running tennis competitions and um, having little trips around South Australia uh, as, as a group of girls, usually with one of the older women, a mother or an aunt, along with them. They were really independent, I guess, in a time where that was not normal. And one of the strangest things is that among my grandma's possessions that she left behind was a certificate that she got in jujitsu. And nobody knows anything about that or how she did it or how she got it. And she was such a quiet, unassuming woman as an adult, as a mother and a grandmother. She was very much in the background. So, yeah, this, this was a mystery 
Um, and of course, I never got a chance to ask her about what was up with that. Of course, she was quiet. She knew she could take down someone three times the size. She didn't need to put it out there. Exactly. I guess for, from what you're describing, I can see particularly parallels in Margaret, who at a very early stage is frustrated in her desire to go to university. But all of the, the main, the core group of friends in a history of dreams also had this outlet in that they are they are learning to be witches. Audrey has a power that has been passed down through through generations. And I also am really curious about this idea of power, both Audrey's power over dreams, but more particularly your power as a writer. And I wonder once once you've settled on your fictional world containing these kind of extraordinary elements, how did you settle on dreams? Like, I mean, as a power, how did you say oh, it's going to be dreams as opposed to superhuman strength or flight? Um, well, this book did take about five years to write and it has, uh, it's gone down a lot of different pathways as I work towards this finished mm-hmm. version of it. Uh, so there was an earlier version where each of them had their own power, where Audrey wasn't teaching them or anything like that. They had just... Uh, been born with these powers and they came together in a sort of more traditional superhero way and, you know, formed a, formed a club and took on the world. They were much more powerful in those early versions. Um, but that didn't ring true for me. That wasn't the kind of world I wanted to create. I wanted something where, uh, where essentially their power was never going to be enough to save them from the troubles that they faced, where it was something additional that they had that drove them to try to change things, but that was not the sort of thing that would, you know, bring down a government or destroy a dictator. Um, so this this power to control dreams, I can't even remember where I got it from, but when I sort of look back into my subconscious, I guess, and where these ideas come from, I've always worked as a writer in communications um, and a lot of my work has been trying to persuade people to change their minds about things. Um, and I think that this idea of changing people's dreams to change their minds is something that resonated with me and that, that once I fiddled with that idea, which was a power one of the girls had, it, it spoke most strongly to me as something that made sense in my view of the world. I mean, this is, this is so extraordinary and you couldn't possibly know this, but this strangely parallels a conversation I was having earlier this morning, which will also be featuring on the show about the exact opposite of what you've described, where powers exist and they're constantly being leveled up in this unbelievable way. And somehow, you know, character, story, everything in the Everything in the story suffers if we just kind of have the MacGuffin of the outsized power that can solve anything. And you create this really extraordinary circumstance where the, the, the fact of the power simply compels the young women to act, but it can't solve everything, which is just incredible. I guess it's a thing that, that a lot of us face. Like you, you may have a particular talent and you might feel some pressure to use that talent to do something, but you might want to just have a quiet life or step away from it or do something entirely different. But uh, knowing that you have that ability compels you in some ways to at least decide whether you're going to act and use it or whether you're going to decide to step away from it. Yeah. And you work so, you work so wonderfully intentionally or otherwise against, I think a quite insidious aspect of our world, which says if you do something, then you have to do it 
and be the best. You can't simply enjoy it. And it it's a contrast that we might come to when we discuss some of the later themes in the book. But before we leave this idea of power behind, I also have to ask, do you have any secrets in crafting a believably extraordinary world? Because a history of dreams is exactly that. You don't punch us in the face with the power. It is there. What are the challenges of being superhuman in the world? Um, I guess that creating a story like this for me the most important thing is that I believe it I guess um I try always to uh empathize deeply with my characters to understand what their motivations are and how they might feel I guess the thing that's most important to me in creating things like this is how how do the people feel about what's happening and how do their feelings cause them to react so I guess it's just a step of imagining that integrating that power into that this this you know unreal fictional Mm. fantastical power believing in it myself enough to be able to think okay in this circumstance if I could do this how would I feel what would I do how would I react um I don't know if that really answers your question but yeah for me I guess it's always it has it has to be believable to me it has to make sense Mm. within the world of the book um it has to not be something so gigantic, but yeah, that it that it uh, that it undermines all all believability. That it, it undermines people's decisions and the reality of it. I wanted to write something that is about our world, essentially, mm. but just amped up a tiny little bit. Oh, terrific! And I will admit that was incredibly cheeky of me to saying, "Hey, give us a little bit of a masterclass in the middle of the." Uh, <laughs> I wish I interview. knew what I was doing, but yeah. <laughs> Now, now let's go to maybe another power in the book, which is the friendships. And the friendships are really at the heart of A History of Dreams. That relationship between Margaret, Esther, Audrey and Phil, we see it grow from their school days as they sort of move out into a world that is about to rapidly change on them. And their friendship, it's both at times ideal and fraught as the world shifts underneath them. So tell me about these women. Were they were they products of history? Were they purely from your imagination? Where did they come from? They started out as historical people. They are based on real people that my mum spoke to in her book. Um, so that, but the the relationship between my characters and those real people became thinner and thinner as the story developed. Mm. Um, so yeah, Margaret is loosely based on my great auntie Jean. Esther was originally based on my grandmother, but is nothing like her at all. Um, And Phil was based on um, a woman who my mum knew as her auntie Nett. uh, She wasn't her actual auntie, but, you know, you have those women in your family who you Mm. call auntie, um, who to me was always a really mysterious character. She'd had this husband who she'd married just before the war. He died in the war. And she had never, as far as we knew, been involved in any other relationships with men. Uh, She had forged ahead in her own life. And I was curious about whether, you know, whether she had a sexuality that she wasn't open to discussing. Um, So, yeah, I I wanted to give Phil that. But Phil was someone who is proudly gay. She is Mm. absolutely comfortable with her sexuality and her identity in my book. Um, So I wanted to explore also what that might be like in that setting. And Audrey is based a little bit on my friend Rose, who is a brave, eccentric, uh, wild, strong character who Mm. I've always admired and thought, I wish I could be a little bit more like that. They are are terrific as themselves and also in their unity. And that 
that strength in their unity, I found it was it was something that kind of tested them when when the unity uh, slips a little bit. They they probably most. I, I mean, I'm going to think mostly of Margaret here calls herself into doubt. But I also found that unity. It, it at times it was really interesting the way it was contrast with the. Um, I'm just I'm just skirting around sort of spoilers here, but the very individualistic dreams that we learn are being fed to the men of not just your story, but in sort of in the the larger world. Can you talk about this idea of of that strength in friendship and the way friendships then in turn shape us as individuals? One of the things I wanted to look at in this book was collective action because I feel like, so I guess one of the main inspirations for this book was that I have worked for a long time in my life in my fiction and in my paid work in environment work and in climate change and um, have faced the frustration of knowing that whatever I do, that it's never going to make that much difference. Um, And looking at the kinds of stories that our society produces about how you might succeed against a mighty enemy, be that, you know, a fascist government or oil companies or whatever, it's always a tale of individual Mm -hmm. heroism, um, of superpowers, of strength. And I wanted to look at how how could we collaborate more with each other? How can we do these things collectively? How can we build relationships that uh, can both, help us to change things and help us have a better world if we do achieve that change. Because that's just as interesting to me is what happens if we do get there? What happens if we do fix this? What does a new world look like? And I think that needs to be based on strong relationships and respectful relationships and friendships and understanding one another's differences. So I wanted to create a a group of friends who didn't always agree and who had different approaches and who often fell out, um, but who all had this kind of aim in mind that they were all working towards. What, wow, what an incredible observation. And I think you've really tapped into, we talked about the idea of power and dreams and how communication kind of, it's, you know, you're, you're only extending real power that exists in the world. And this, this pervasive story of individualism that we are constantly being told is, is kind of in its own way, like some of the, the darker dreams that are fed in the book. I want to, I want to ask if this story has changed at all for you, but I want to I want to kind of qualify and contextualize that question because I I started a history of dreams kind of well before the very recent election, and thinking about it now, like when I read this book, I was just like, oh yeah, you are you're tapping into something here, like I'm feeling it, and now the book hits a little differently. <laughs> And so in A History of Dreams, you explore the creep and then kind of the sprint of conservatism, which I don't know, I I don't want to presume how you were feeling about the world, you know, even a few months ago. But are we like if we're feeling better now, is that something we should get comfortable with? Or as as the girls, as Esther, Margaret, Audrey and Phil, is it something we should always be on the lookout for? I think it's something we should always be on the lookout for. And like, you know, most Australians who care about things like the environment and social equality and justice, obviously I feel a lot happier now than I did a couple of weeks ago. Um, But I think my happiness mainly comes from the fact that I see other people around me actually do care about those things, value those things and wanted to change the way Australia is. 
it doesn't come so much from the ALP will save us all and it's going to be amazing Mm. Um, because I think that uh, the political culture in Australia is very much about maintaining the status quo and just tinkering around the edges. And it's still about, you know, uh, keeping the people who have the money with the money Um, and, uh, you know, Fossil fuel growth is not being pulled in at all by by any of the promises this government's making, and there's not any significant interest in, uh, you know, protecting biodiversity or anything like that that we have seen so far. So far, maybe maybe it will turn out to be great and brilliant, but I think yeah, the the governments in Australia generally want to keep things as much as possible the way that they are, um, mm. and that what we need to have a livable future is to change things a lot dramatically, uh, a great deal. And I don't think there's much appetite for that yet. So, yes, I think it is definitely still something that, well, we all have a little rest and go, oh, that's a relief, yeah. that that there will still be lots of people working on this and trying to improve things and pushing things ahead and, and encouraging everyone to try harder. And as I guess as Margaret and Esther learn the – the the silly the silly men spouting their venom in dark rooms may seem may seem harmless when it, it is a closed room in the dark, but it is it is something we need to be on the lookout for. I'm sorry, someone has just woken up. I don't know if you yeah, saw yeah, that. For it. <laughs> don't. <laughs> you, you're about to meet. I think you're about to meet someone. Uh, she okay, has exciting. She has featured on the podcast in the past, but right now she's trying to squeeze behind the computer. All right, come in. <laughs> come in. Let's get this out of the way. Oh, hi. Hello. This is, this is Rocket. Hi. Hello, Rocket. <laughs> I I work at home without the heater on, but I give her a hot water bottle. But I sus- oh. I suspect that's gotten a bit uh, lukewarm. Yeah, she wants some of your warmth, your body warmth. <laughs> you work without the heater on when it's this cold? I'm in bed right now talking to you because I'm in the room without the heater on. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. in a I'm in a small small room that's easy enough to kind of just be warm in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's come Let's come back to that theme because. One and and also just about your writing and and the style of a history of dreams. One of the terrifyingly brilliant aspects of a history of dreams is that it all feels so real. And I feel like great urban fantasy, which I would I would suggest that a history of dreams is is urban fantasy. Also, similarly, great alternative history, which is also a history of dreams. It inserts itself into a world, into the world in a way that could be true. Like, you know, maybe this just happened and we didn't see it because it was operating beneath the surface. I wondered as you, as you researched and you, as you were writing A History of Dreams, what did you see in Australia's dreams of itself in the 20th century that inspired particularly the, the, the fascist poets that uh, come to feature in the, in the book? Look, there are a lot of things, but one thing I'm definitely obsessed with is the Anzac legend, uh, which comes up quite a lot in my short stories and in others of my novels. Um, And that kind of expanded into an interest in Australia's idea of itself and what it had done in World War II. Um, I was curious. I feel like we're very self-congratulatory about how we were on the side of right and justice and against fascism. But uh, my reading of history leading up to that period is that that was, it could have gone either way and that it certainly wasn't an ideological decision for us to, 
to join a war against Germany. It wasn't because we didn't like Nazis or because we thought that fascism was bad or that we thought that all races should be equal or anything like that. That was not part of the thinking. Um, and Australia at the time, and you could argue now, um, was was ideologically as much aligned with, with some of those ideals that Hitler had as, as we were with um, with anything opposing that. Um, so I, uh, a lot of what I drew on was David Bird's work. Um, he did this book called Nazi Dreamtime, um, which sort of looked at all the various strains of fascism in Australia leading up to the war and all the enthusiasts for Hitler's Germany who there were in Australian society at the time, and there were loads, um, mm. either to a greater or to a lesser degree. You know, some people were just like, well, this guy Hitler, you know, he likes strong young men and he wants to make his country strong and proud. And that's great. We could, we could be into that. That seems nice. Whereas others were full on anti-Semites. Um, but one strain that particularly interested me was that in Australia, there were, uh, there were quite a few artistic communities who were very mm. sympathetic to what Hitler was doing. And it seems like in the arts today in Australia, that's such a strange idea that, that you could ever be aligned with a fascist government and be an artist. And yet it's perfectly possible. Um, so I, w- I was curious to learn more about them and about the kinds, the ways that they saw Australia and their dream of Australia and what Australia could be and, and how we might have gone had we decided to adopt some of those ideas, which honestly were not that out of line with a lot of the ways that um, Australia talks about itself, particularly when we're talking about Anzac Day or talking about winning in sports. Um, yeah, so so that that was what drew me to that. Have you read any of uh, Solari Gentile's um, Roland Sinclair mysteries? She very mm. much deals in, in that sort of space as well. Yeah, yeah. As I was starting to get into this, I was like, oh, I definitely need to read some of that. Mm. And, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's lots of stories out there about Australia's enthusiasm for Hitler's Germany. And I think a, a similar question, I am almost certain I would have asked Solari this question at one point or another, how do you work into this history? Like, how do you how do you find a way to occupy the spaces that are provided by an accepted history, um, weaving your story without changing, I guess, the basic flow of what we understand? Um, it wasn't that hard in Australia, in, in that I was very lucky that uh, Joseph Lyons, who was the Prime Minister, died in office shortly before World War Two. And while in real history he was replaced in a fairly seamless fashion and things continued on, that that was an easy opening for me to explore. Mm. Had that been a little more tumultuous, what forces might have been able to rise up and take control at that point? Um, And I guess the other thing is that, yeah, there were plenty of people when you look at contemporaneous records or just read the newspapers from that time, there were plenty of people talking about how why would we want to get involved in this war on Britain's side? This isn't our war. We don't agree with what Britain's doing. So there were actually plenty of opportunities to to write this story. Really, my only major addition was having this power to change dreams um, mm. and just to shift things a little to tip the other way. I want to riff just for a second. Normally, I am very careful in the way I prepare my questions, but I'd left a note for myself that didn't sort of get fully realised. But I do want to ask you about it because I've mentioned that um, we first meet um, the, the the fascists that become, 
I guess, a, a large part of the story as a small group of, uh, I guess, burgeoning, um, burgeoning poets. Um, and one character in particular, a school friend of Margaret's, has discovered Australian literature. And it's, he doesn't make you want to read it. Um, very, this, very, this very juvenile kind of boy's own idea of of what a literature is and what it should do. And I really, like, I don't have a fully formed question here, but I'm very curious about what you were saying there and and what your own ideas around um, literature and, and if it's even, if it's even uh, useful to talk about literature as a, in a national way, um, the way your, your fascist poets were doing? Um, I think Maria Tamarkin is really great on how at every opportunity we should step away from the idea that literature is something that's good for Australia um, or that literature should in any way be nationalist, that, that when we talk about the arts to sort of integrate those with any idea of improving Australia is just leading us down a, a path that can get very bad very quickly. Um, so it was a little bit inspired by some of those ideas, but also by reading um, a fair bit of contemporary literature from the time um, and some of the themes that were coming up in that. Um, I have to be honest that the, the poetry that appears in the book um, was written for me by someone else and it's slightly shouted out to in the acknowledgements, but he didn't want me to say his name anywhere. Uh, so <laughs> unfortunately I can't, but he's a great Australian writer who has done a lot of work reading uh, bush poetry of that time and of satirising it uh, and working it into his own work. So I asked him to advise me and he just whipped me up a couple of really great poems. And I was like, well, this is perfect. So You've got your uh, own Ern Malley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a secretive poet working behind the scenes. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I did draw on the expertise of my colleagues in the writing world who have great knowledge of nationalist poetry of the time and how terrible it was. It was just awful. Um, but there's also another thing that I drew on in those poets' circles, um, and I'm not going to be able to remember his name right now, but a lot of the, the conversations that they have are drawn directly from the work of a nationalist writer um, who was working mostly in around the time of World War One and into the mm. 20s, but who had another burst of popularity in the 30s leading up to the war. And he wrote a lot of stuff about the white race and about how women should uh, should be mothers, that that's the main job of women. They needed to get out of the workforce and they needed to breed strong young Australians. That's all women are for. And the book that he wrote, republished essentially, his collected writings, won the Australian Literature Society Gold Medal in 1940 as we had already entered this war against Germany. So, yeah, I was interested in that idea too that this these were not fringe notions in the arts mm. they were pretty mainstream and these ideas i mean i just want to come back to the idea let's let's end where we began with this idea of dreams because they're often synonymous with identity um and we've just been talking about the way a, a, a national literature might try to, or, or the idea of a, a literature can be shoehorned into an idea of nationalism and your dreams, the dreams that are dealt with by the the coven and also by other insidious elements, 
very much try to shape identity. And so I come to this just absolutely terrific line from Phil. So as she takes on the guise of a young man to gain employment, because at this point in the story, women have been forced out of work and into marriages, or that's what they're, tr- that's what they're trying to do. She wonders at the inane chatter of her male colleagues, and she thinks she didn't actually want to be a man. She was a woman, and she had women's dreams. And that, that word dreams there is doing so much work in the sentence. I wanted to know what you saw as the fundamental difference and, and how maybe we can think about what we dream of. That is a difficult question. So that scene in particular, um, I was, oh, it's really hard to explain without tripping myself up. Um I wanted to show that Phil was, while she wanted to, she didn't want to appear traditionally feminine. Mm. She was not interested in any of the uh, feminine aspirations that the government was feeding her of being a mother, of being a great housekeeper, that she aspired to all sorts of different things, that they were not specifically the Mm. kinds of things either that the government was telling her men would want, which were things about, strength and physical prowess um, and being the the greater force in society, I guess, that what she wanted was to be free to have her own dreams, to create her her own identity as the woman, to be able to, uh, to have sex with other women, to have relationships with other women, to drink beer in the street, to wear whatever she liked. Um, Essentially, it wasn't the specifics of the dream. It was just that she wanted to be allowed to be a woman in whatever way it was that she wanted to be. Mm. It's sort of, I mean, and it really landed for me, you know, we're talking about the same sort of discussions around things like gender binaries that we're, you know, we're still struggling with at the moment. And almost like on the surface of it, I think a first pass, you would think, that what is happening in that part of the book uh, is women's roles are being limited. And I really got this impression that Phil, Phil through her experience, through her power, um, just through, you know, living her life, she actually understood that while herself and, and other women were being physically limited in what they could do in the world, she also saw that these, these dreams that the men were being fed were incredibly limiting to them. And it's, it's this really, really strange thing that I, I don't think many men have a handle on, that if we, if we allow ourselves, you know, if, even if men have all the power in the world, we are still extraordinarily limited by the, the dreams and identities that are forced on us to maintain that power. And it was really, yeah, it was really interesting to see that gotten at, but then also have your characters, and again, I'm just dancing around the spoilers here, have your characters realise that, the realisation doesn't necessarily lead to the solution straight away. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, yeah, that that is what Phil is understanding as she, mm. she spends all her time during the day with men, most of whom are mm. delighted by this idea of male identity that the government's giving them and her realisation that that is so limiting for them as well, mm. as you said. But there are, there are a few men in the novel... Mm who uh, don't buy into all that, who also want to live their own lives and be their own way and try to express themselves more fully than this limited idea of 
of what Australia wants them to be as men and who are capable of having friendships with women and are not feeling threatened by these women who have intellect and ideas and imagination and who want to spend time in their company and to enrich one another's lives rather than continually forcing one another into these roles, uh, which doesn't answer your question at all, but (laughs) nonetheless. It was was an open question and, and Jane, what a what a it's a terrific book and what a terrific chat. Like I I feel like books and stories that are driven by relationships. I I want to talk about the relationships and it's almost like we sort of forgot to tell say much about the story. So as I reintroduce that I am speaking to Jane Rawson about her new book, A History of Dreams. I might just drop in there that it is actually a story about a coven of witches fighting a freaking big bad, like. You know, if you were just like, hey, too much about relationships, Andrew, why do I read this book? Coven of Witches, fight a big bad, buy it, see who wins. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I would explain it to people as witches versus Nazis in 1930s Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's brilliant. That's, uh, that is, yeah, that's better. That's better. That's better than what I did. <laughs> this is this is a terrific book, and it's it's so timely and so wonderful. Um, and the scary because you know you'd hope that things a hundred years ago we weren't we wouldn't still be making the same mistakes. But again, go out and read it and see why it's a little bit timely. <laughs> I am speaking with Jane Rawson. Her new book is a history of dreams. It's out now, um, and it's yeah. It's Witches versus Nazis in Adelaide in the 1930s. Jane, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Andrew. And thank you for your extraordinary, like, focus and patience. Like, I don't know, what, I can't even imagine what it looked like to you as Rocket was just zigzagging back and forth. <laughs> it looked like my life. I mean, the cats are both locked out there and because the fire's on, they're mm. not hassling me, but... If the fire was not on, it would, they would be here. Oh, <laughs> wow. See, I i mean, I could have shut the door, but that's actually a bigger problem because yeah, she- Yeah, because then you go, wow, 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 wow. Exactly. <laughs> no, I totally know where you're coming from. Yeah. Yep. So thank you for that patience. She, um, she eventually oh, yeah, settled no for about 10 seconds and then she's taken herself off. Yeah. And thank you again for your time today. I just wish you all the success with the History of Dreams because it's so much fun to read. Thank you so much. I get, sorry I, I struggled a bit with that question about Phil's dream because that chapter I spent a lot of time worrying about. I'm like, I don't want to imply at any point that there are only women and men and that women can't have men's dreams or men can't have women's dreams or that trans people aren't real. Or, and, <laughs> and I'm just waiting for someone to be like, wait a second, what are you saying here? I'm like, no, no, that's not at all what I'm saying. It's, but yeah. yeah, that would feel like that would be the sort of hot take that ignores the context. And I yeah, I guess yeah. I guess I also wanted to engage in, um, with that idea that Phil was dealing with this artificial binary and responding yeah. to it in the best way she possibly could. Yeah. Mm. No, it was it was terrific. And it was just this... Were you like again? Oh, random question pops into head. Were you? Did you ever have a favorite, or were you? Were you conscious of crafting the characters in a way that favorites would be picked? Uh, Margaret is the one who is most like me, so mm-hmm. I was most focused on her and this idea of if you're a good girl and you follow all the rules, shouldn't things work out for you? And what do you do if they don't? 
Um, so that that was kind of my central question for her and for myself. Mm. Uh, where's the point where you go, actually, the rules are bad and the people in charge are bad and it's okay for me to go blow up a coal mine or whatever. Um, so in that sense, Margaret was my favourite, but when editors and other people were looking at it, they were like, Audrey's the main character. It's like, is she? <laughs> How about that? Interesting. So, yeah. I missed I missed Audrey when she was gone. Yeah. Um I was I've, I I was very attracted to Margaret because of her her self-doubt and like yes. she she so evidently had power and I sort of thought her her power I would suggest probably rivals Audrey's but she is her own handbrake. Yeah. But yeah, then, then you just had Phil. Something about a character who just says, "I have power," and that don't. Who cares? I'm just going to ignore it. Yeah. Anyway, and now I'm, I've, <laughs> I've now got to say something about Esther because I actually just a character that can come back from damage is also just extraordinary. So yeah, cool. They're all favourites. Yep. Good, yeah, good I love question, them all. Andrew. Good question. I love them all. My favourite character is Adelaide in the 1930s, though. <laughs> That's actually what I miss the most. It's just hanging out in Adelaide in the 1930s. There you go. Yeah. I, heard yeah. That, I don't know why this popped into my head, but I know that there is, you know, a broad fascination with kind of period stories. I really yeah. hope that this gets made into like something visual. Th- that is my ambition. I would love that. That might rescue my career. Um, and, then- <laughs> and, and also I think it would be great for that kind of thing. So if you ever meet anyone looking for a Netflix series. Yeah, but yeah incredible. <laughs> let them know. They yeah. could, I mean, I would even I would even accept it if they did that. You know, inevitably if you've got powers and you've got a fractious team, there's going to be the visual where it's sort of like, sliced across the screen in each of their faces and they get their own they get their own kind of color palette absolutely and yeah yeah the, the, and margaret is green i think it'll be yeah it's obviously red and it'll have to be you'll you'll either be like are you team margaret are you team audrey are you exactly team Phil? yeah when when do the sex in the city style quizzes start which oh. which are you? <laughs> weirdly, weirdly, I was going in more superpower directions, and I was kind of riffing on the what was it team, the, the vampire werewolf on team Jacob, and I can't remember yeah. the other yeah, guy. Yeah, but- me neither. The other guy and that one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The other guy, the other one's the one that's big now. He's Edward. That's Robert Pattinson. There He's Batman now. He's Batman yeah. now. He's Batman. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Oh, here we go. We're going to start fan casting in a sec. And I, I, is it even fan casting if the author does it? I don't know. <laughs> You've got there. Are, there are going to be some incredible young act, actors out there that would just be amazing at it. But um, Jane, you've already been so generous with your time. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Jane. Bye bye. See ya. That's it for this great conversation with Jane Rawson. Jane's new book is A History of Dreams, and it is out now from Brio Books. Thank you to, thank you, is that the right word? Thank you to Rocket, who joined us on the podcast. If you would like to know a little bit more about Rocket, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. Rocket quite often pops up. Uh, She loves a good book. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is presented and produced by Andrew Popel. And I've already done the social media thing, so I'll just let you know that if you subscribe in your podcast app, there is a new podcast Sometimes a bonus, always a bonus, every week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye for now.